Hey guys, and welcome back to Skullcast for episode 40. Uh, we have our regulars as usual. Someone had mentioned that we should have more guests, and, and I, I'm not against that. I just, I'm trying to think of a way to make that work for whatever topic it is we're talking about. And, uh, you know, I've done it in the past. Like, if I have an episode about art, let's bring on people that are artists in real life. If we have a music talk, let's bring on someone that makes music, that kind of stuff. And when it, when it comes to talking about volume two, I, I don't think we can get Mirror on the show. So, I who's mean, a, who's, who's, who's a favorite who's a volume? It's volume two. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, whenever the topic makes sense, I'd, I'd have no problem with bringing on guests. I just want it to make sense. I don't want it to be just arbitrary, like, yeah, you. Well, so you have to say, you know, so I want it to work for the show and make it entertaining for everyone that listens to it as well. So I don't want it just to be a novelty. Here's our guests for the week, you know, so. Uh, but if anyone feels they like really strongly about a particular topic and they want have something to say about it, I mean, talk to us, send, mention it on the forum and I'll try to make it work. So since last time, of course, uh, issue three of Gigantomachia has come out and uh, it's sort of like a middle chapter. Now the conflict is finally upon us in the story. Uh, the giant, the giants, plural, are at the doorstep of this, uh, the beetle, beetle city. Beetle is an official name. <laughs> Just, uh, you know, capital of the scarabs or whatever, scarab. Scarab capital, yeah. The battle that has been looming since the first issue is now started, but it doesn't get its really, truly underway until about halfway through this. But to me, the most significant part of this, well, there's twofold. There's two big reveals in this uh, issue, and that one is that the Beatles have their own giant, and it's a, a giant of of Gaia. So kind of the planet kind of grew this giant. I, I'm presuming, and it seems to me their whole city is sort of based around this, or the the the, the giant or the god sort of. Actually, you know, the the entire yeah, civilization is based around it. Like you know. Mm-hmm. Like, like it says, uh, the chief says so in the, in the episode, but like all their cities are connected, you know, via waterways under the desert, you know, and right. it's mm-hmm. through their god, you know, which is, uh, the god is named, you know, Happy. It's a, it's a, how to say, a reference. Yeah, it's reference to an, an Egyptian god, you know, who was like the god of, that flooded the Nile every year, you know, bringing on, you know, mm-hmm. all the, like, you know, the possibility to, you know, do agriculture and shit like that. So it's very, like, it's truly essential to them. Right. Now, right. I have a question about it, actually, because, I mean, you said it was growing out of the ground and then it looks sort of like a forest growing into, you know, this weird creature. You could see what looks like an arm and an eye that gives you an idea of a shape of a, of an actual, like, giant that would be walking on the surface. To me, it looked like something that had, you know, like, I don't know if it grew out of there, but, you know, and I didn't see anything in the summary to confirm or deny it. But, like, it looks like something that like, maybe that sort of uh, like a fallen giant in a way, like. Oh, yeah, sure. Is there anything that references this? Like, maybe did it, you know, come on these hard times? Like, this is like one that, you know, like he he got mortally wounded or, you know, is just sort of, you know, on life support there. Or is well, that just the way it is? It's what I thought originally when I first saw like the, yeah, you know, the, the, the picture. I, I thought it was like a giant, you know, who had died or at least fallen down and been, you know, wounded and was just, you know, prisoner there. But actually, it's truly a god, you know, like they, they you know, revere it as a god. And uh, it's like, you know, promises it's not like it's not one of the original gods. Like it's not like, you know, one of the it's not Gaia. 
but mm-hmm. it's like you know from Gaia's flesh, so it's you know related to Gaia. But I, I don't think it's a uh, we we don't get any specific uh, how to say information whether or not it grew there or it just you know it's just lying there or anything like that. But what's sure is uh, it's a um, it's some kind of a new god and it's truly essential to to them you know a new giant and that's why the the empire you know is coming like the gi- they come for for these guys that's what they want they want him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that part was interesting to me as well, and it made me think about you know why the Empire wants it, uh, apart from it being obviously a threat, is that if you look at the last couple pages of this, you get to see a really close-up shot of the giant. And we've mentioned this yeah. before, but it has these like little hooks on its little on its body, and kind of like a netting. And the mask itself, when viewed from a distance in that one shot, looks very much you know unlike the rest of the body. And so I'm wondering yeah. if yeah. they found a way I to control it, it, you know? Yeah, yeah it's what I thought. And, and you know, one thing is like there's these these uh, Egyptian Egyptian themes, you know, uh, mm-hmm. which are recurring. And I got a feeling like the mask reminds me a bit of a pharaoh's, you know, uh, headgear. I don't know if mm. you if you feel oh, it, yeah. but it does this thing. So I do, I don't know. It's probably I'm not sure it's related because it's more like the story is more about you know Greek mythologies and Egyptian. But you know, I don't know. That's what that's the feeling I got from it. Yeah. I also got and, the feeling from it from that face that it's sort of like that's the face they want it putting forward, you know, something that represents the empire, whereas whatever's under there probably is completely, you know, yeah. different and inhuman yeah. you know, looking. Right. It's also a stamp of their authority. I mean, that's that yeah. face. We, we see it during the last issue during the Gladiator flashback thing. We see that or a face. I'm not sure if it's the face, but it's sort of like, you know, representation of. This is the Empire's face, essentially, you know, or represents them in the very least. Yeah. And, you know, another thing, you were mentioning the netting, but, you know, when you look at the, you know, close-up shot of it, Mm -hmm. you can see that there are little things growing out of the giant. And so it made me think, it might be, this one might also be, you know, like, how to say... A plant, you know, plant-like nature, you know. Mm. So yeah. it might be the same kind of stuff. Another, you know, giant who grew from the earth, you know, like Gaia, the earth gave birth, and they found a way to manipulate it and, like, you know, restrain it and, you know, make it do their bidding. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that we're able to have this kind of that, – that part of level of discussion when this thing hasn't said a damn word. They haven't said a damn word about the giant other than it is coming. Yet we can extrapolate all this from it. It's, it feels to me like they should be addressing this kind of stuff this late in the in the miniseries. But again, I'm making this out to be something it's not. I, I want more information where more information likely isn't to be provided. I just kind of want a little more well, than what is know, given to us. You know, I actually think it will be provided, but like at the end, you know, because mm-hmm. it's so short. Yeah. So- the, the problem is the scope, you know, like you're expecting it's a beginning of the war and such a thing, whereas the entire story is taking place, like, we got to see, you know, I actually had a thought about the wrestling match, you know, we saw earlier. I remember in, in the last podcast, you were a bit, you know, how to say, not surprised, but curious about why wrestling and such. But, you know, yeah. wrestling is actually was a very integral part of Greek culture back in the day you know it was like the central sport of the olympic games and stuff like that and so thinking back you know beyond the fact that mira likes you know uh wrestling and you know grappling sports and such you know actually i think it's a it's a pretty good fit for the story you know like if you were center this on the fact it's greek you know referring greek mythology and such well it would make sense for the main character to be a wrestler you know because uh 
you know, even the, you know, famous philosophers and such, you know, were, you know, usually, you know, uh, what to say, fond of wrestling and, and shit like that. So I think it makes sense. I think, you know, when you take all of this, you know, as part of a Greek, you know, you know, like it all centers on Greek culture and Greek mythology and the ancient, you know, Greek, you know, civilization, well, it makes sense to me. Mm. I guess my apprehension in the last issue was was more the amount of time they were spending on it, and I was waiting to see how that was uh, brought into the main oh. you know uh, issue. And obviously, we've already discussed how that might happen, how that might be folded into the main conflict. So, yeah, well, rem- rem- remains to be seen. Yeah, and of course, yeah, there's a fact, you know, like I was saying before, that it's just, you know, like it's a short story, you know. I think, like, like I said, they'll just, you know, defeat the giants, and then, you know, it will be like, you know, the beginning of something that well, we are not. Oh, how do you know? Maybe it'll crush <laughs> them. I mean, yeah. It'll... <laughs> well, maybe they'll die and just, you know, like, you know, Promi and Delos will run away, and yeah, that's it. They'll survive. Well, we sure, you know, we're right to flee the fight. Yeah. <laughs> the last few issues have ended with the, a shot of the giant coming. And so maybe the last page is just the giant continuing walking, you know, continuing to stomp. <laughs> yes. Because of the mask, he can't see where he's going, so he's just yeah. walking right past them. Just like little flowers he's smashing. I just uh, thought of a reference probably almost no one will understand, but um, something awful fans, if you remember Batman is coming or Dracula is coming, one or the other. It's one of the Flash know. Tub episodes. I do not no. remember. Yeah, if yeah, you don't remember don't it, remember no one that. will. Sorry, everybody. Look that up. <laughs> The other uh, kind of reveal uh, that I learned from Azil's summary of it was that Prome is – I don't want to get the wording wrong, but the uh, leader of the Scarab people recognizes her or senses that she is a, a spirit of martial arts? Yeah, a master what? spirit of martial arts. Yeah, something of the sort. Okay. Well, you know, like you know, Ogun already referred to her as a spirit before. Mm-hmm. And yep, uh, yep. so the thing is, you know, like – it's a it's a word which she supposed like uh, uh, you know it's what you know Puella told me so I, I I can't actually you know vouch for any of this but okay. you know like in Japanese it's a it's a word car with a, a long you know vowel on the car so it, it's mm. you know in the dictionary it says you know car but in any case it's a uh, it's probably referring to either you know Egyptian you know uh, mythology or maybe Indian mythology which you know, something like karma, you know. And right. so, in any case, you know, the meaning is spirit. So, they, they refer to her as a spirit. Uh, a spirit that is from the old world, meaning she she's probably very, very old, you know. And that's why she has so much knowledge about everything. And so, yeah, they refer to, he refers to her as a spirit of martial arts, like a, a master spirit of martial arts. Mm. So, m- maybe that's why she's with Delos, you know, maybe... Like, because he's, in a way, a martial artist, being a wrestler and, and such. Maybe she accompanies him for that reason, or maybe not. We don't really know. It's one of the things that remains a mystery for now. And uh, yeah. I'm still, you know, like, even though they refer to her as a spirit, I'm still, you know, how to say, not convinced she, she's not some form of android or something like that. Well, yeah, that I could mean, just be their interpretation of what an android is in, the, in this yeah. world. Oh. Yeah, pretty much. Much like she says, like when she heals, you know, Delos using, you know, some kind of mysterious, you know, power, she refers to it as nectar, you know, which is again reference to Greek mythology. And uh, Delos just waves it away to the others. Oh, it's just magic and such. Right. But, uh, you know, I don't think this is a world in which magic exists. Like it's mm-hmm. all about, you know, biological evolution and, you know, probably genetic manipulation, that kind of stuff. I don't really know, but, you know, I really, I think the jury's still out on, on this matter. Well, and there's, there's that common notion that 
you know, to an ancient world, science appears like, like magic. You know, technology appears magic given a, a certain number of years away. So, of course, it would seem like that to someone. Yeah. That being said, like, she might she might actually be, you know, a spirit. I don't know. I guess we'll mm-hmm. see. Sure. Uh, I said in a thread that this episode reminded me the most of Berserk so far. And what I meant by that was sort of like the action scenes, the, the shots of action. It's very Miura-like, uh, you know, the... The, uh, the underside of this giant elephant creature having a beak. And then you see the shot of just people's like, you know, body parts falling down from that. Yeah. Straight up, straight up Miura. And, uh, the shot of Ogun throwing the spear. The pacing is the most like a typical sort of, uh, berserk episode. Totally. Totally. Ogun really, I didn't notice it until this episode, but he really reminds me, it looks a lot like Boscone, you know, just his character design, his face. And, and <laughs> someone's going to say, well, did they all look alike to you, Walter? Like, no, it's not just that. I mean, certain shots, even his expression sort of remind me of Boscone. But uh, he could sort of acts like him, too. Proud warrior type. You know? He is that same noble, bald-headed, you know. Yeah, black dude, guy. You know, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, going for there is, a, yeah, there is, I guess, a resemblance. Although I'm still, you know, I don't know. I would say, I would have said more about he was like a, one of the tapasa, but... Uh, yeah, it's true. He has, you know, some style. He from the, most, from the, from the he, neck up, I can see the boss coach. I mean, definitely his fighting yeah. style and the way his muscles look, you know, is very reminiscent of the Tapasa. But, I mean, it's just because we're playing Berserk match game Yeah, yeah. with the characters. Those would be the two you would choose for him. Man, boss going as a Tapasa, that'd be pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I've already said the thing about the Empire possibly wanting to possess the giant... Yeah, there's one of the there's one shot, you know, when uh, Promer actually says, you know, like the giants are coming. Well, mm-hmm. you see, like sh- she receives some kind of signal, you know, which is a bit like right, when yeah. uh, Shiruke or Guts, you know, like feels something, but it's bit it's a bit different. Like mm-hmm. it feels more like it's electrical in nature or something like that. I don't know the, you know, the you know style used for it, you know, again, you know, makes me think, you know, she might be like, you know, some kind of machine or something like that. I don't know if it's just me, but uh, you know, well, I don't know. That, you just don't want to believe she really is going to be like Fee from Skyward Sword. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, you know, I, honestly, I wouldn't really mind, you know, either way. But uh, I don't know. This one intrigues me. I guess she could be some kind of blend of. Those things, you know, the natural world and the technological world. She could be some kind of yeah, this sort of thing. ancient automation, maybe something you know, yeah, created by the gods. Yeah, but I mean, as far as just that little spark thing, I mean, I don't, I don't see anything definitive, of course, but it certainly does remind me of the Shirake stuff. Whenever she senses something, even to a certain extent, guts, you know, but not quite the same way. Um, yeah, didn't have a lot more to say about the issue. Um, one thing I found interesting is uh, the way, you know, uh, Mura depicts uh, these people, you know, like the way they are close to insect in that they will not try to save, you know, their children or women. Of course, you know, there's a fact this is pretty much their last, you know, bastion. Like, yeah. you know, the empire has destroyed everything. And since they really want uh, their, gi- their god, you know, their giants, they are coming for it no matter what. But there's also the fact they are all ready to to die like they're ready for you know their race to be extinct you know because they just will protect their god you know to the end you know i think right. it's, it's interesting and the fact delos just can't understand it because you know that's not his culture but you know that's who they are and that's who they they will be you know yeah that is interesting part of the episode for sure and 
yeah, it's not just an individual thing. It's all about their, this this particular culture, and you're, you're seeing the strength of their culture and, and how they were able to survive this long was because of this kind of self-sacrifice notion, which, mm. of course, Delos finds a little uh, different. Sure. Agreed. Uh, looking forward to the next one. Not much more left to this series, guys. Looks like like maybe forty five or forty eight pages left, or something like that. So, gonna be quick. I think it's more like you know sixty actually. Because we've got like, do we have three more? Is this the third or the fourth? This, this is, the, is third. the third. This yeah. is the third. I I, I so think it's like we. Halfway. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Some of the other ones are not going to be as long as like the first two episodes, but uh, this one was already quite short. I mean, it felt yeah. short to me. Yeah, the next three will be uh, probably a bit longer, but you know, not much more. Like you know, each will be under thirty pages, something yeah. like twenty-seven each, I think. Okay. So, so we've got like sixty to ninety pages. Yeah, I, I'd say yeah, about uh, seventy pages. Uh, we will have to okay. count how much you know we're done so far, but I think it will be you know. Maybe 80, yeah. I'll go with 80. Well, I mean, we keep what. referring to the page thing because we're just trying to determine the flow of the story. But in a inter- typical Mira fashion, each issue does end on sort of a highlight. It's structured so that the episodes make sense by themselves to a certain extent, you know. So at least two more climactic moments before the end, you know. So Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I obviously no word yet on whether or not Berserk will resume directly after it or, or, or after it. I haven't gotten my young animal yet, so I don't know what's said in it. I, I doubt we'll know towards until the end of this series what's going to happen with that anyway. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I think it will be it will resume, you know, early in the year. In any case, like I, yeah. I doubt I doubt there will be a, a big break in between Berserk and uh, I mean between Gigantomachia and uh, Berserk. I think at most it would be like a month and a half or something like that, you know. But that would be at most. I don't expect it to be that long. Yeah. <clears throat> so on to our reread section. Um, last week we reread uh, Volume 1 and Volume 2 is uh, – we're going to do this today. Going to get as far as we can into it. Um, honestly, you know, I didn't have a lot of expectation for rereading this section of the series because I realized as I was reading 2 – it's probably my least read volume of the entire series. Really? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've read through, you know, the series multiple times, but two is the one I, I sort of flipped through more often. But because of the ex- this exercise, I sort of paid more attention and I realized that I've really been taking it for granted. And not that it knocked my fucking socks off or anything, but just that there are things expressed in this issue that are central to the whole series and, and particularly to yeah. guts. That are implicit in other areas of the series, but are stated directly here, and uh, just things I, I didn't. I honestly, I must have been overlooking one or two pages of dialogue uh, in, in this volume. Because again, when I reread it, these are not the volumes I pay the most attention to. The first, you know, couple. You know, continuing, you know, on the same line as the first, you know, volume, which I, I think again, you know, is pretty great in that it establishes a lot of things about the series. Yeah, I think this one it really. Like, you know, pretty much the entire, you know, the core of Guts' character is, you know, summed up in, in these volumes, you know, really. You can, you know, you can tell anything about Guts. Yeah. Like, you know, somebody who's perceptive would not be surprised by later events like the Beast of Darkness or stuff like that, just having read these volumes. Because it's mm-hmm. all laid out, you know, in there. Like, the basis is all in there. Two moments in particular. I'm not going to do the page-by-page stuff anymore. I think that's boring. What? Um, 
Yeah, fuck that. We, we can if you'd like, but I don't really want to. <laughs> Two particular scenes that Puck has are uh, he's talking about uh, is this gut strength when he's talking about the the emotions he senses from within gut, and he even refers to it as uh, I don't want to use the dark horse translation, but he refers to it as fire, uh, which we see Flora touch on later on as karmic fire. But um, and also that he's telling when he talks to Vargas, he t- Puck tells Vargas that I think it's better to fight for the future than avenge the past, which is like maybe he should tell that to Guts at this point in his life. Maybe things would have gone a little <laughs> different because that's the conclusion that Guts comes to in Volume Seventeen. You know, protecting yeah, but yours. Guts is not very receptive at this point. Of course, I mean, you, you yeah. see, you see Puck trying to reason with him, and it, it doesn't really work. You know, because. Guts, you know, puts on a very harsh and cold face, even though it doesn't necessarily reflect what he feels, you know, like truly, but he doesn't, just doesn't want to listen. Yeah. Or, you know, course. what he doesn't, what he doesn't want to feel, he's sort of blocking it all out behind that, uh, yeah. That you know, indeed. You know, when you, the, the part you refer to is, uh, I think when, uh, Puck is trying to co- convince Guts to go save Vargas from being mm-hmm. executed, you know, and, uh, I like, you know, I think that, that, you know, moment is very, you know, there's a lot of things in there. Like, you know, what Guts, you know, replies to Puck when he tells him, you know, that Vargas would just, you know, would just, he's just useless. He would slow them down, you know. And, uh, I think it's interesting to consider given what is revealed afterwards, you know, has happened to him. Like the fact he's lost his comrades and, mm-hmm. uh, Casca situation, you know, and he's just, you know, he's very, you know, how to say, he doesn't want to get attached to anyone. And, but at the same time, you know, he's, he's quite upset, you know, that, you know, Vargas is being executed. And, uh, you know, after that, you know, after what Puck tells him and when he goes and such, you see Guts, you know, you know, like, you know, remembering what Vargas told him about yeah. the count and such. He's touching his own, you know, arm and eye and he's like punching the, the wall. So he's, he's clearly like, it resonates with him, even though he doesn't want to, to admit it, you know, like, I think Puck also tells him that, uh, like maybe you're afraid, you know, you're afraid you're like him, you, you're fighting a fight you can't win, that, that kind of stuff. It's very, like, you, that's something that goes through the whole series, you know, like mm-hmm. he's both enraged, but he's also afraid, you know, afraid of them, afraid of the gold hand and the apostles and afraid he can't, you know, like he can't defeat them, he can't protect the ones he loves. All that stuff is already in there. Totally. I mean, the, the, he has a line in there, it's the cost of uh, ambition that's greater than you is self-destruction. So he's, he's breaking himself apart. By trying to do this massive task, yeah. And also, the, the fact that yeah, that scene with him assembling his his, uh, his gear and remembering what Vargas said—it's like it finally dawned on him how similar they they are. He and Vargas, yeah. even though he was initially yeah. repulsed by him, because Vargas is someone that was placed in a similar circumstance, and and to Guts's perception, he was brought low because because of it and became looks uh, you know even looking like a monster. Yeah. Know, plotting, plotting and underneath, whereas Guts feels like he's going out there and actively doing something. Vargas is pleading with him to avenge his, his family's death. Guts finds that low, but, but quite honestly, they're, they're very similar in, in, in their circumstances. So. Well, I also think that's why that. he, why yeah. he rejects him and hates him. He's this reflection of, you know, yeah. what happened to him and, you know, his weakness, you know, his mutilation, yeah. you know, he's touching, when he's thinking about him later, he's touching his missing eye and, you know, remembering what Vargas said about his eye and his limbs. And it's, you know, it's very telling. Another thing interesting about that scene, to go a little, 
like think a little uh, out of the box about it is that it mentions you know Vargas's family and everything and what was taken from him and obviously yeah. guts you know it's implied here has something taken from him and I wonder if you know it could have been anything at this point his you know we know what it is but I mean maybe Mura didn't at this point I mean it could have been you know he might have had a family something like that it's just interesting to consider like if he had had a yeah. wife and child you know yeah, I agree. And I, and I think Mira already had an idea at that point of, you know, what Gus was supposed to have lost, you know. I mean, there's already the demon child, there's already, and yeah. in volume three, you see Griffiths and such. So I, I think he had an idea. At least he knew what he wanted to imply. And I think, you know, Vargas, that scene where he recollects his escape and stuff, you know, it's both used to explain things about the count and establish what Griffiths, you, you mentioned the other time about the archetype of apostles, you know, who just, you know, like to mutilate and eat people and such. But at the same time, Vargas also explains, you know, like he felt guilt because while he was seeing his family being tortured and eaten, he was just scared, you know, like he was scared, yeah. you know, about himself. And I think, again, you know, thinking a bit maybe out of the box, but Gus could also maybe relate to that. Like the fact, even when he saw everything, he might have been afraid, you know, for himself, you know, for his life and not just concerned for others. You know what I mean? All yeah. those feelings, you know, you know like the guilt, you know. Yeah. Well, that being said, in the moment of the eclipse, he did do everything he possibly could, and, of course. and was mutilated okay. because of it. So, you know, uh, going back to that, I think there's one scene which is very powerful. It's uh, you know, just after that scene where Vargas, you know, uh, talks about his escape and such in the Beherit, and he says he's researched, you know, for many years, like seven years, mm-hmm. but he he hasn't learned anything about it. And then Gus, you know, lays it down. I, I think the way the scene is done is. First off, it's very well done, like the pacing and the, the way, like the, you know, there's some exposition, but it's, it's very cleverly put. And then Gus lays it down and you see his face, like when he said it's a key to open, you know, a door to where the, you know, the god end, yeah. you know, lies. You see his face and then there's the, the shadows of the god end and the yeah. black sun, you know, like that's the first time you see the, the eclipse, you know, the black sun. I think it's a very powerful, you know, panel. I, I always yeah. liked it. Yeah, and they used. I mean, Mira uses that technique a couple, multiple times. That sh- yeah. that kind of shot of the god hand. And this is. Uh, I feel though that that just before that page, the the big page of the god hand in his face, there's this little panel where he talks about what the god hand are, and I feel like there needs to be a little more emphasis since that's such a fucking huge part of the lore. It needs a bigger panel, man. It needs like a whole page, <laughs> just for emphasis. And of course, <laughs> well, we and get he this- also he looks very much like. Uh- Volume beast, sixteen, yeah. yeah, when uh, when Mira is very intentionally drawing that sort of evil, you know, side mm-hmm. of guts, where it's just you see his face with just you know the one eye. It's a very yeah. early stylized uh, shot in that way. Yeah, and he, he knows he actually knows a lot more. Oh yeah, I was surprised by the amount of there, you know <laughs> the demons that you know manipulate the dark side of human history. It's like wow, guts was really he really got a lot out of those eclipse ceremonies. Oh, yeah, fighting he, for his life. <laughs> like Skull Knight must have been handing him some notes whenever he was on the horse. Like here, just for later, you know, light reading. Was that being said? It's not that you know, like he doesn't say anything too too crazy. I mean, yeah, I mean, but a, it's like it's interesting how well he yeah. interpreted what yeah. Roy, you know, was saying. Basically, I mean, he yeah. really understood. It's what I was about to say is that he, he maybe he says it a bit too eloquently, you know, like instead of just saying, yeah, these monsters, you know, lurking in the darkness, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, they influence mankind <laughs> through causality. <laughs> and then, you know, there's this. 
So I right, mean, it, it doesn't sound like a very guts thing to say. Even if he is, we know guts is smart, but he doesn't usually express himself in a smart way. You know, yeah, that's yeah. all. This is a rare, but I mean, he is speaking with a doctor and everything. I mean, this is it's too early <laughs> for this kind of development, but it's interesting just to see it where it's like you know, to, wow, you know, this yeah. is a neat little moment uh, in retrospect. Yeah. yeah. Um, the fact that. Sorry, I was going to say Puck realizing how good of a swordsman Guts is. We talked about it last time as well, but it is, it is a neat moment that, you know, Guts is not just, and even for the reader as well, the Guts isn't just some guy with a big sword that he can, he honestly is a smart, very, you know, brilliant, uh, yeah, person in combat. You know? Yeah. I can handle even like the last minute changes in a, in a combat scenario. He can adapt to it quickly and, you know, get out alive. It's pretty impressive. I was about it's to cool- comment on something a bit, uh, like a bit, a bit earlier in the in the in the volume, which is oh, not as Zondark. <laughs> yeah, it's about Zondark actually. Yes. Okay, <laughs> go for it. It's you know when uh, when he's sick, you know, like you see a shot of the empty you know city and stuff like that, and then you know it cuts to Zondark being you know like he's rampaging, like he yeah. kills his doctor and such stuff. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and you see it because he's just you know you know raging mad from the pain and i don't know because he's insane and so there's a the count arrives you know and i think it's a shot i i was quite impressed by it actually when i first read uh, this volume so that's why i'm i'm talking about it is you see the count is just you know some small and fat guy you know he's not very impressive oh, looking yeah and then he just, you know, like he restrains Zondak with one arm. He just, you know, he grabs him, him like, like an animal, you know, like a dog or something the way he holds him. Yeah. And the thing is, Zondark is, he's fucking huge and muscular and stuff, but you see, like, he's completely blocked off. And, you know, I think that conveys, you know, quite, you know, powerfully who, like, you know, inhuman and powerful apostles are, you know. Like, you know, that scene, I remember being quite, you know, shocked by it. Of course, after that, he, you know, uh, gives him the gift of the giant, you know, larva, which is, uh, quite something. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, I, I always, you know, I was always impressed by that scene. I think it's really pretty cool. And, uh, it, it establishes again, you know, like that an apostle is just, you know, not somebody to be fucked with. And also oh, the way yeah, that scene sure. ends, cause Zondark is so large and, you know, physically, I mean, he looks even bigger than Guts, you know, he just represents yeah. sort of this, you know, physical power. And at the end of that scene, when, you know, he's saying, you know, you know, take this part of me into you and all that, we see this final shot of Zondark on his knees with the count and the count just looks, you know, he dwarfs him in size, you know, suddenly yeah. he looks, you know, humongous compared to him. And, and it's a, just sort of a neat little, uh, yeah, indeed. what it says and, with images. And after that, when like, you know, when he comes out of the, of the door, you know, and like he has to bend because he's so tall, he's become like, you know, super shredder, you know, he's fucking yeah. huge. <laughs> he, he's guy, he's guy's a fucking tower now. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty I mean, cool. The pseudo apostles, well, I've never been quite as powerful as this guy in, in terms of, uh, his combat ability. I mean, there's the goat and there's, there's, uh, uh, Moscus's guys, but this guy really stands apart as being pretty formidable. Yeah, when he comes in the room, you know, when he breaks through that wall, he looks he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger in one of these shots. Like he literally looks like the Terminator, like very (laughs) much so. On page thirty six of the Dark Horse volumes, as a matter of fact. Oh yeah, I I had the same feeling. That's right. Yeah, it's also neat. Yeah, on the page before when he breaks in, you they they do the shadowed face with the eye trick, you know, like guts, but it's the opposite eye. So he really is sort of a physical doppelganger. Yeah. yeah, he's meant. I, 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 I've always felt like he was meant to show that guts, 
Like he's not just a huge guy, you know, muscled with a huge sword. Like to show that even a bigger guy with a bigger weapon can still lose because Guts is more skillful and, and stuff like that. Like to dispel yeah. the early, you know, uh, how to say the early, you know, misconception that Guts might just be about brute strength and power. Right. Right. Um. I also thought it was interesting that the child appears to him again uh, after uh, Vargas' yeah. execution, yeah. and then he adopts Vargas's head. And I actually wondered to myself whether that was a hallucination on Guts' part, or if it was some kind of thing the child was doing, you know, or if it just reminded Guts of his like his, his weakness or his inability to help. Like, it's basically a little of each, probably. Yeah, like you know, I I thought it's it was sort of I was... a serial thing. Yeah, I always thought it was uh, the child, you know, taking on, you know, Vargas' appearance mm-hmm. because, like, he's a spirit and such, and he's again, like, not ju- not really taunting him, but uh, you know, like, making him reflect on his attitude and stuff like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I I always think, you know, like the child, like he haunts guts, yeah, like really, mm-hmm. like literally, like a ghost, you know. But uh, at the same time, I think he doesn't really mean ill things for his father. And so I think it's also a way to make him reflect on it. Like you see, the, you know, Guts, you know, rejects Puck and such, even though he's upset by all of this. And he goes in, you know, whatever, some back alley and he sees a child. And after that, you see him, you know, with his equipment and, you know, thinking back about what Vargas told him and how they're similar to each other. So I think it contributes to his, you know, self-reflection and uh, maybe betterment, you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't even necessarily think the child is serving one purpose. I think it's doing multiple things in this part of the story. And, yeah. and maybe even Mira didn't necessarily know all of the roles the child would play, but it is a, it is by definition a haunting, uh, part of his life, whether it's meant to be, uh, you know, ill willed or not. It, it, it works that way in the story. So I feel like, um, as I said, it's kind of touched on this before, but, uh, with what Puck says about guts and, and, and kind of looking at Guts in a new light, I kind of felt I, like I understood Guts a little better. And I know that's crazy to say having read the story a little longer, but I just really got into reading this this volume and it, it felt like a, a, a part of the story that I probably never spent as much time as I needed to on. Because it is so action-based, because it does kind of go from fight to fight, I was ignoring the in-between scenes, which are just vital to understanding Guts' character uh, in this early point in the series. So, I mean, it's definitely worth a reread for people that maybe breezed through, uh, the series earlier on. You know, if you, if you read the whole series in, in three days or something, you might want to revisit this earlier volumes because they lay it down pretty succinctly, uh, what Guts' motivations and, and everything about him is like. So that was cool. Yeah. You know, there's one thing also I wanted to mention, which is, you know, uh, when Mura got that, uh, you know, uh, Osamu Tezuka award, you know, in 2002, uh, he, yeah. he had a little interview and such where they asked him, you know, what was his favorite, you know, manga from, uh, from Tezuka. And he said it was, you know, Dororo, you know, which is a, a manga about, uh, a swordsman. Well, Doro mm-hmm. is a, is a thief, you know, but, uh, the story, you know, also focuses around a swordsman who has been born with missing body parts because oh. he's, uh, yeah, he's been sold, you know, as a child by his father to demons, you know, uh, you know, in exchange for power, you know, his power to rule the country and stuff like that. And so he's born, you know, like without limbs, without eyes. He has got nothing. Like he's missing, you know, 48, you know, parts of his body. And, uh, just to cut it short, you know, well, that guy, 
he, you know, he's a swordsman, you know, who is wandering, you know, searching for the demons who hold his body parts. And uh, he's pursued, you know, relentlessly by specters, you know, by also demons and evil spirits who just, you know, possess, you know, various things like, you know, it could be anything from leaves to grass to, you know, uh, shoes or whatever, you know, some pretty traditional Japanese stuff. But uh, I think in such a way, it's, it's quite, you know, it's quite similar to Berserk, actually, you know, the... the from that aspect, you know, the way Guts is, the wandering swordsman who fights against, who is pursued by, you know, specters, but also, you know, seeks them out. It's, uh, it's quite similar. So I, I mm. find it interesting. That is interesting. I didn't know all that about, I'd, I'd heard of Dororo because of the interview, but I've never read it and I never really investigated it beyond you know, the surface glance. So that is interesting, the similarities between the two. Mm. We see, um, there's another, I actually had forgotten about this character, but, um, Guts takes on another named useless guy in this episode, in this issue. Garrico. Yeah. And, and wipes him out in two pages, which was, which was funny to see because it means Guts isn't fucking around anymore. With, even with Vargas, <laughs> he kind of toyed with him for a little bit and even stuck around for a one liner afterwards. But this guy, he just whips him in half. He's like, you're in my fucking way, you know? It shows that he's serious. And, um, the only other thing I wanted to say about this issue, I'm sure you guys have more, but, um, yeah. was the count is an interesting opponent because he's not necessarily humanoid in shape. Guts is used to fighting humanoid, you know, monsters. Even, even wild is, is a humanoid arms, legs, you know, yeah. two legs. This is just it's a like giant monstrosity. Usually, whereas the count is just something totally alien. Yeah. Totally. Just like, you know, obviously Guts knows his weak spot, but it's a totally different kind of fight because of it, because of its size, and uh, it's malleable malleability, you know. It's an interesting fight, and it's yeah. Just, they don't really complement each other as yeah, opponents totally. necessarily. There are some gorgeous shots of it as well. Uh, just uh, the two-page spread of the the dark two-page spread of the count growing. Uh, yeah, really, really, really nice. The lighting in this scene is fantastic, even considering it's black and white. Just the way it looks, the sharp contrast on all the gross features of the count's body. It was really well done. Also, I like the the shot of Guts looking, you know, sort of, you know, excited, plus, uh, you know, there's going to be some fear. He's got this really strange look on his face when you first see the the Count rise up and you see Guts, you know, looking at him. It's sort of, you know, it's like the moment he's been waiting for, but at the same time, it's, you know, he's, the impressiveness of the Count isn't lost on him. Yeah, he doesn't know if he's outclassed yet, basically. He doesn't know what he's in, quite what he's in for in terms of how the fight's going to go, you know. Yeah. He knows a, a fight with an apostle is could be, you know. A it's big just a deal. very yeah. on his face and exhilarating moment, clearly. And yeah. something before we, I guess, get into the finale of this is a moment earlier for the count who has his own mm-hmm. little, you know, touch of uh, character development with uh, Teresa. Sure, yeah, yeah. Where uh, he goes to a room and you know he's trying to be sort of normal hold on to you know an aspect of his human life with her you know he tries to touch her though and she is just repulsed completely but i mean she doesn't even mean to be there isn't like a whole like you know f you you know dad moment here like at the moment she's like she tries to say something to him and then she just says oh nothing and he leaves the room and he's you know clearly very upset and in a very human way he tells every you know he tells uh, his little assistant there to leave him alone and go away, and he's, you know, very angry and upset, and it's sort of like he's having this introspective moment, and then he, you know, gets his apostle senses kick in, and he realizes that Guts is coming up the tower, and he yeah. sort of, 
it's an interesting comparison with Guts how then he sort of loses himself in those like baser apostle feelings. He starts laughing and you know he gets giddy with you know sort of the thrill of bloodlust there of what's to come. And he sort of you know it's he buries his humanity in that moment. Yeah, because uh, he's just sort of you know he gets he buries his pain and in, uh, in that feeling. It's yeah. sort of the same thing Guts does. And I like the fact, you know, as you mentioned, that, you know, Theresia is just like, she's repressed instinctively, like, because she, yeah. you know, like, because she's not human anymore and she can feel it. And, uh, yeah, I always thought that was also quite, you know, quite interesting, you know, and the way he fights to hold himself back, you know, to be tolerant, to not be a monster, such a thing. So it's quite, it's quite interesting. And, uh, you know, regarding the fact, you know, uh, like when Gus, what you mentioned, he, you know, stops and is a bit expectant, you know, looking at the count. I also think it serves to say to show that, like, this isn't an apostle to, you know, to say it's not like a minor apostle, you know, like the snake yeah. baron, you know, was serious and he was dangerous and such. But like this guy is a real deal. He's a he's a fucking monster. He's huge and he's powerful and he's not afraid of anything. And I think the from the setting to the huge room with the pillars to the fact he's on the throne yeah. and everything, it's really meant to be that. And it, it actually that's a fight that's a mirrored from uh, the prototype, you know, like the 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 duke, you know, in the, the way yeah, room. they comes from the throne and uh, <laughs> yeah. What's also interesting is I think it's also there's also sort of a look of you know triumph on Guts' face, like you know, like you know, I've made you reveal what you really are. I think there's also here's the real you, you know, that even just that is a thing because he he's fond of telling them, you know, that they're yeah. just monsters and reminding he, them, yeah, yeah, and. um Another interesting thing, I mean, just about the Count and what you were saying about his prowess is he's another one of these uh, apostles that was, you know, a great warrior in his life, in his human life. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that, you know, plays a part in, you know, what they become and sort of at least their prowess, too, when they, you know, even, you know, Wilde was, you know, powerful. And I think, uh, I don't know if they mentioned how old he is, but I mean, I think it's implied that he's pretty old for an, as an apostle. But, you know, he doesn't have any skill. Or anything like yeah. that. It's just sort of a raging monster that, you know, gets by on his strength and reflexes. And obviously yeah. we see he was just, you know, likely, you know, he's implied. He looks, he's this little old man at the end. And, you know, he might have just been a pathetic, you know, old man at the time of his transformation. And maybe for his whole life he was a pathetic man who was, you know, living out his fantasy as wild. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the way he, trans you know, the fact he transformed into a monkey is also quite, you know, revealing. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know. He was, you know, he was a kind of guy, you know. I, I think it's meant to emphasize that he was not, you know, not respectable, you know, not really as an apostle. He was feared, but, you know, he was nothing special. And, and you know, it's also shown by the fact Zod, you know, seems to have like absolutely disdain no... for him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, complete disdain, you know. No regard. You know, yeah, pretty much, yeah. You know, to, to go back to volume two, there's one thing that's, it's just a point of detail really, but, you know, when Guts is coming up the stairs, you know, <laughs> where he fights, you know, and uh, finishes off uh, Zondark, you know, it's wooden stairs, you know, and, uh, it's, you know, it's interesting to me. I, I've always, you know, been interested by, by, by this setting, you know, like why wooden stairs? And, you know, I, I find it interesting because, you know, typically when you see, you know, like a castle scene like that, you know, people are going to make, you know, uh, you know, stone stairs, you know, like, you know, spiraling or stuff like that. And, and I find it interesting that Mura chose to use wooden stairs, you know, first off, because it's like historically, you know, accurate. So he probably researched it and made it so. But I, I also like the fact, you know, 
like the fight took place there and you know with Zondark like you know breaking the wood you know and, and stuff like that it's just you know it's not much but uh, it's a detail I, I find interesting you know like that kind of stuff like the fact you know Mura w- went so fast to to use a kind of environment like that you know which is you know how so much there. thought he sort of put into it because of how he wanted to portray the scene yeah it would have been different if it had been stone steps obviously it couldn't have, he couldn't have he could have you know broken stone away but he wouldn't have been able to outright destroy it yeah in the same fashion yeah and, and the fact he went you know he went that way you know i really think to be in order to be accurate you know to what was used at the time well all of this you know it makes for an interesting fight and, and i think that's what one of the things i like is that you know you know, you can tell even this early in the series that Muir likes to strive for, to do different things, you know, to try to vary things off so that there's no repetition. Even when, you know, he's fighting the same kind of adversary, you know, even the way he finishes him off, everything is, you know, done, you know. Like, there's a lot of diversity in it. It also reminds me of the scene in uh, Batman 1989 when they're going up the bell tower at the end. <laughs> I mean, just an aside, it always has, just because... I. Obviously, watched that movie a lot as a kid. So, <laughs> there's that. Yeah, great reference, you know. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Just I like, like the- I like the line he has for Zondark too. He's, you know, it's a good cuts one liner where he basically just says, "Well, you know, you've you've changed." You know, I think he says he looks better, you know, than he did before. Yeah, <laughs> clearly he's just becoming completely <laughs> ugly and monstrous. <laughs> says it's an improvement, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. I, I think it's really, you know, like I said again, you know, I, I think these, these volumes really do a, a pretty good job of establishing the character. You know, actually, I've always been of the opinion that people, you know, how to say, disregarded them, you know, much too easily and that they were, you know, rather underrated. And uh, I still stand by it. I think there's a lot of greatness in these volumes, even though, oh, yeah. yeah, it's the, like, it's the early series and so it's not as polished as the rest and there's uh, many reasons and such, but, you know, when you put that aside, there's a lot of a lot of really great things in it. Yeah, I mean, just the the way it concludes with the the battle between the Count and uh, Guts. I mean, after Guts has done some damage to him, and you know they've traded some blows, they it gets you know almost sort of like philosophical, like ideological. The Count starts telling him, you know, how you know you can't defeat me, and you know what you are because of the brand, and how he can't fight fate, and he's going to ultimately crush him. He basically, you know sort of reads in the riot act on how pathetic, you know, this whole effort is, you know, but obviously because he's, you know, he has been hurt and Guts has, you know, defied him. But, it, you know, Guts, you know, it gets to him. He takes it personally. He's got this, you know, wounded uh, look on his face. Yeah. And then the the Count attacks him again. And it looks like Guts is actually, like, it throws him for a moment. Yeah. And that's when uh, the Count uh, gets the upper hand. You know, one thing that's also interesting is the fact, you know, like... It's pretty clear Guts is outmatched in this, in that, you know, you, you can see him, you know, playing like, you know, cat and mouse with the count, you know, where the count is like, you know, looking, you know, behind the pillars, you know, trying to find where he is. And, and Gus doesn't hesitate to use, you know, the, how to say, the old guy, you know, Dal, you know, as a, as yeah. a, say, a, a lure, you a know, decoy, to, yeah. Yeah, a decoy to, to, to get him. So it's interesting because it shows that, you know, Gus is, is outmatched and he's, he won't, you know, like, you know, stop at anything to try to, to get the upper end, you know, even, you know, using these kinds of tricks that he doesn't necessarily use, you know, you know, later in the series, you know, he's, you know, as the story goes by, he gets much more straightforward, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean well, to the point where in uh, volume 25, you know, I mean, even 
we've heard the complaints, you know, I've some of them not, you know, very valid just about how cool and casual Guts is with like the uh, the ogre, you know, and and the yeah. trolls and things of that nature where it really is like, you know, old hat to him, you know, he's in his sort of in his physical prime, you know, and in his skill set, you know, dispatching yeah. monsters of that variety. And you know, it's like it's it's easy for him. It really is, you know. You know, he doesn't even get, you know, he's not really challenged or hurt very much in those kinds of fights. Yeah, and, so what, you know, it's it's interesting to see his evolution. Yeah, so that's what it's meant to see, to to show actually yeah, is the that's fact what it's that supposed to show. Yeah, that that it's you know it's dashing to him because he's used to fighting so much more, you know. Yeah, and obviously the stakes, you know, that also signals it's like, well, time to raise the stakes, you know, on guts, and uh, sadly yeah. <laughs> for him. Let's oh see, well. Are there any other little uh, points in here that we've missed? Well, it's just, you know, the way, you know, Puck and uh, Theresia, you know, I would say... Uh, their whole interaction. Yeah, it's a fact, you know, they are spectators to the show where not so much Theresia, but, but Puck, you know, which uh, sets up the story for when, you know, uh, they all get, you know, taken up, you know, to the place the Golden resides. Yeah, you know, it's kind of obvious now, but I never realized before just about Puck, like, you know, his role, like, you know, I always think of him in, you know, connection with Guts and now uh, Sidro. But, you know, in these early volumes, he really is sort of the glue that, you know, ties everything and holds it together. You know, he's sort of friends with, uh, he becomes acquainted with everybody. Yeah. You know, he's, you know, he's with Guts and he's with Vargas and then Teresa. He ties all these characters, you know, indirectly uh, together. Yeah. Yeah, he actually has a he has a pretty good relationship with Vargas, where he, I'd say, you get to see, you know, like Vargas' good side, you know, uh, and the fact he's not a bad guy, and what was mentioned earlier, the, the fact he tells him, like, you know, he's, you know, he should look up to the future and not just live in the past and that kind of stuff, and you know, all these little hopeful moments. Yeah, where uh, he, he sort of influences everybody to some degree, you know. I mean, the way yeah. he influences uh, Teresa obviously has a greater bearing on what's to come. Yeah. He takes them, he's really the voice of good, you know, taking them up to the, you know, towards a, a good path as opposed to like what might be revenge or such, uh, stuff like that. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. Even for, even when it comes to Theresia, we're getting her, you know, to come out of a room where she's just, you know, she's, she's a prisoner, she doesn't want to get out and she finally does, you know, as the door breaks, you know, that kind of stuff. All of that is brought about by, by Puck, yeah. Hmm. Well, let's see. Were there any other uh, things you wanted to touch on? No, well, I guess uh, maybe just the fact it ends on a pretty big, you know... Uh, Cliffhanger, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It looks like Guts is uh, pretty much finished. Yeah, actually, end, you know? I, I almost dead, you know. You see there's this shot of his face, you know, like with his eye open <laughs> and reversed. Blood his coming eye is out. like rolled up into the top of his head with yeah. blood coming down his face. Puck looks... You know, the... It's a good use of expression, you know, but Mira Puck just looks, you know, absolutely horrified. Yeah. And there's a, there's a count looming over him, you know, so yeah, it's a, it's a pretty big, you know. It's, you know, it's probably one of the biggest Griffinger in the, in the whole series, I think, you know. Yeah. I, I'd have trouble thinking of something more dramatic, like where he's really on the brink of death. Well, yeah, like literally, if the count was quicker, he could just, you know, tear him in half right now and, you know, yeah. be finished with it. Just but, smash uh, him. Yeah, but he's sort of gloating. I mean, it looks like basically everything he said, you know, calling Guts, you know, Quest basically sort of like, I don't know, this 
like he's uh, Don Quixote or something. Yeah. You know, it's come to pass. You know, he has just been uh, justified and validated and victorious, you know. So this, yeah, it basically ends with the Count Victorious. I yep. mean, for all intents and purposes. With a to-be-continued. Yeah, indeed. And it's interesting because, you know... Uh, in volume three, it turns up to be Puck who saves, you know, Gus' life by stalling and, you know, yeah. talking to Count, you know. So it's really a, a prolongation of what we are saying just now. But, yeah, once uh, again, Puck's influence on yep. the series of events. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess well, that's about it unless you have uh Nope. Yeah, I think uh, we covered pretty much all of it. All right. Well, I guess that's the end of our reread then and the end of the show for... Uh, for the volume two edition. Yep. So, well, until that, next time. Pretty much. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> well, I uh, guess. Do, uh, do you want to? Do you want to leave different endings for Walter that you can you know edit together? Oh yeah. <laughs> like, go. You can do one. You want to? Let's see who can get the best sign off. We'll see what he uses. Oh man, I don't even know. You know. <laughs> see you next time. You know, I like. <laughs> Like Samus, you know. See you next mission. Yeah, this has been the this has been the Skullcast. Thank you for joining us. Have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good, actually. Yeah. See you next time. You know, same hour, same same channel. You know, that, wasn't that what they were saying for the old, you know, Batman shows or shit like that? Yeah, they, that is like an old uh, like trope. The you know, same Batman time, same Batman channel, <laughs> things like that. So yeah, I'm the sh- same Berserk time, same Berserk channel. Yeah, sounds pretty good actually. We should do we should do that, you know. Well, the joke is that he's just gonna leave all this shit on the end, and, and basically everyone hearing us acting like idiots. So yeah, <laughs> this oh, is well. the best sign. That's the best sign off of all. This is the end of the year, so for me, what this means is family and friendship and Steam sales. And mostly mostly Steam sales. (laughs) I, you know, last year, uh, Kagan had just been born, and so I wasn't really in the mood to spend a lot. I spent a lot this year, guys. Uh, I think I may have spent like maybe 70 or 80 total, but I I ended up with quite a lot as usual. I got Assassin's Creed, I got Assassin's Creed 4 for $10. That's not that much, you know. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, I mean it's cons- considering that each game I bought was like between five and ten dollars. It's, it's quite a lot. You know, I like to think of myself as somebody who's like you know frugal, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I at least spent you know half of what you did, probably you know. So including yeah. uh, the you know complete Wing Commander collection on GOG, you know. I almost went for that. You know, I ended up getting Wing Commander three. I just skipped past the first for three because that's the one I feel like everyone always references. But I've never played it, so yeah, it's uh, it's not quite as old as the previous ones, you know. Yeah, it, but I looked at the first two, and it was looked very much like of its time. And yeah, they so did. Wing Commander three is the one with Mark Hamill. So yeah. I'm interested in seeing how that goes. Uh, you know, twenty years past its prime. So I've like seen that whole game. Is I haven't actually played the whole game, but I mean, my dad got like the collector's edition tin of that when it came out. Oh wow! <laughs> like, it came in a tin like that looked like a movie reel, like for a theater. 
Nice. And yeah, because I mean, Chris Roberts was just insane about his whole like interactive movies. I remember I've seen like the behind the scenes documentary on Wing Commander 3. Wow. <laughs> so I'm very familiar with that game. <laughs> yeah, I'll check it out eventually, I'm sure. I and mean, my, my GOG list, the backlog on that is just a, it's just a joke. Like I have like probably 25 games. I maybe have played two of them to completion and that's like stretching it. Most of them are just like, it's more of a, a archive or a library or a, a museum, even than my steam list is. Cause it's all games. That, oh, this is an amazing game from 1987, which I'll never, <laughs> ever, ever, ever play, you know, but I can't pass it up for $2. Um, so I got Assassin's Creed four. I got enslaved, which is a game that came out in PC recently. That was pre- first was a Xbox 360 exclusive. I've always wanted to play it. Didn't own a console. Came out for PC, I instantly picked it up. Uh, I got Lords of Shadow for $10, that quote-unquote Castlevania game that uh, Zeal has mixed feelings about, as I recall. Uh, yeah. 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 I'll give it a shot eventually. Uh, I like what you told me about the story, but I don't know. The, the gameplay, what I've done so far, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan. You know, I'll be curious to, to know what you think, but I'm pretty sure you'll think exactly you know, the same as me and yeah. probably be more harsh on it. But uh, okay. by all means, go ahead. Yeah. The wild card purchase I bought was Final Fantasy VIII for five dollars. <laughs> I've never played it. It was it's probably the oh. only Final Fantasy of that era that I never played. The card system is great, man. You see, <laughs> uh, even people that like that game won't defend like that system. Yeah. It's funny. I doubt I'll get more than a couple hours through, but I've always been curious. I was just I wasn't really in a video game mood when that game came out, and uh, I just never got. It wasn't in a it, video so. game mood either, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Too bad. Man, it's, it's quite, you know, angsty. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty terrible, actually. I can't wait. It's kind can't of wait. an exaggeration of, like, <laughs> you know, the Final Fantasy VII angstiness. Yeah. <laughs> like, real deal. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's things. like, oh, they, they like this? Well, here you go. It's like, no, not, not really. <laughs> that, that being said, uh, it does have a, a cool moment, you know, with uh, Odin and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I've already talked about that several times, I think. But, yeah, it, it does have a cool moment, which is yeah, uh, quite, quite more like, you know, organically into the plot, which is neat, instead of just being yeah. a summons. Mm. Yeah, I think in FF6, a lot of the development for that happens, like, in menus. Like, the Esper <laughs> morphs from Odin into Gilgamesh or something like that, like, behind the scenes or something. Well, they, I remember that, like, where it would be like, oh, the Espers have evolved or something. Yeah. And it's like, it's really just, like, in your menu, they've changed. Right, exactly. So, like, part number two, you know, <laughs> you can summon a bigger version. Yep, yep. Uh, and I got Azeel some stuff. I don't even remember what I bought you. Like, I basically, at this point, I'm buying Azeel games so that I hope he plays them and tells me what he thinks. Like, it's not even like I'm doing it out of the goodness of my heart. I'm just like, well, now I had to validate my opinion. Let's hear what Azeel has to say about this. <laughs> well, I think you, you got me, yeah, like, uh, going home, you know? Right. Which, uh, yeah, which you, you didn't think I would like, but I actually not. liked. I liked it. And, uh, you bought me, uh, Volgar's Viking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Which, which is like is, kind of uh, a Genesis game. From yeah. The- it's not yeah, it's, actually Genesis. It's made in that style, you know. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cool, actually. I like it, but uh, yeah, it's pretty. It like you know, it's pretty hard. They're, they're not kidding with that. So. Right. Yeah. Two or three hits, and you're that's it. Restart the yeah. whole pool. Uh, that's pretty much it. Um, that's all the games that I got. But uh, I guess nobody else really partakes in the Steam stuff than, but me. Well, you yeah. know, I, actually, I bought a few games. I bought. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the Jana Sisters, Twisted Dreams, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, I have that. I've never played. I figured it would be nice, and I bought a, a few other things. You know, the, the sad thing is, I, I, I probably can't even remember. Like I, I bought Brutal Legend, you know, just because right. it was like cheap, and uh, I bought, uh, you know, that furry game, you know, Dust, you know, Alien <laughs> Tail, and uh, which uh, I'm sure is great. And uh, yeah, some other shit, you know. Mm-hmm. I probably can't remember all of them, but, uh, yeah, I, I bought quite a few actually, quite a few. Yeah. Cool. I also bought, uh, that game, you know, uh, Amnesia, you know, or whatever, whatever, no, not Amnesia, fuck, what it's called. The thing with, uh, like, you know, like Portal, you know. Oh, Antichamber, Antichamber. Ah, uh, yeah, Antichamber, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty far in that, I really like it, uh, you, you got that for me. Um, it's, yeah. it's sort of like, uh, it's a really good puzzle game. It's very similar to Portal, I mean. There's no way there's no way around that. The structure of the game uh it's very reminiscent of Portal, but the puzzles are all pretty smart. Some of them you'll blaze through and others you'll just be like banging your head against for a while. I've found that I can only really make progress in that game if I'm stuck is just walk away from it and then come back with a fresh head and then I can get through some of the puzzles. A lot of them really require you to like think about just the way you play games in general, it, it kind of plays with standard tropes and how you interact with the world. Like, you know, most games, it's a push-button environment. You push this button and the door opens. This game plays with things like, like, I'm not going to spoil anything, but it keeps track of what you're looking at, how fast you're walking, things like that. Like, what's on your mm. screen, what you can actually perceive, and it changes that while you're not looking. Things like that. So it's pretty nice. Cool. Yeah, it's a neat approach to a puzzle game that most games I've never even considered. Um, other thing I had on this list was I've noticed a lot of game of the year, uh, lists being put out like by GameStop or GameStop, GameSpot and IGN. Uh, Zelda is coming up number one for a lot of lists and that's really surprising to me. <laughs> I think it's because... out of habit, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at this point. I just think it's a weird number one choice. Like top 10 list, sure, I can totally understand that. It's definitely, probably, if I had a top 10 of the year, yeah, it'd probably be on there. But number one, because number one, like, me and Griff were talking about this a while back, but, like, shouldn't that sort of, like, be your statement about where you think games should be going or, like, a statement about the industry, the evolution of games as as, as a as a yeah. medium? You know, this is more of – this is a, a pure retread, you know? It's, hey, it's man, a re- the item uh, rental system, big deal. This is where oh, games sure. – <laughs> Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> But uh, I mean, like, yeah, it's the it's the first Zelda game in a while that I've really gotten behind and said, yeah, I really had fun with that. I have very few complaints. And it's been a while since that, that's happened for me. All, almost all the games I can remember in the past 10 years or so have come with reservations. You know, this one is like, ah, it was, it was good. Story was shit, but small reservation aside, it was a great game. Um, But I just think it's a weird pick for number one when there are other games – Things I haven't played, like, you know, The Last of Us, which seems to be the other number one pick across the board. I would love to play it, and I can totally understand and rationalize why that would be number one. Because yeah. of what it is with storytelling and acting and even graphics, apparently. It's one of the best-looking games of the year. But to see Zelda trump that, it's just, I mean, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it's a, any top ten list when you're dealing with editors, it's a, it's a matter of compromise between what can you get that everyone else will agree with. And I can totally see Zelda being like the common ground choice. Among you, know, a lot of, you know, I think it's also the power of nostalgia and the franchise, you know. But what's weird is, you know, I think, like, if you were going for something like that, I'd rather put uh, the new Super Mario game, you know, mm-hmm. over that, actually. Because uh, it's both a nostalgia thing, but at least it tries to push the, the envelope, which I don't think uh, the Zelda game is doing at all. 
Mm. Yeah. The only way I can really see it is if it's like, you know, they literally spent the most time this year playing that game and had the most fun. But, you know, it came out November 22nd. (laughs) So I'm I'm sure they – I know game editors would have played it earlier. Mm -hmm. But it's still sort of, you know, really? Yeah, the last second winner, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, yeah, there's also that effect where, you know, like the game, the, the game you've played in January, you know, like it's not fresh in your mind. Yeah. Like, I know it's exactly. not fresh in mind. I don't even know what I played, you know, until like, mm-hmm. you know, last month. So this one just came out. And so the remember it's just think it's more fresh. So I guess that could explain it. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I don't, I don't put a whole lot of stock into the top 10 list. To me, they're more of a, a chance for, these kind of sites to be like advocates for games they really liked, like to give these games a chance to really shine to people that may have missed them, you know. But most of the time, I think a little too much thought is put into what's number one, what's number seven, what's number five. Like a lot of that is arbitrary, you know. So, but the number one spot should be to me like the one game that resonates with the most people and pushes the industry like a couple inches forward as far as what's capable of the medium. And Zelda does not do that in the, in the, yeah. in the, in the small amount, you know, but it's fun so as hell. Sure. At least, you know, yeah, it should be something that sort of progresses the medium or is, you know, transcendent. Like even if it doesn't, you know, progress it like, wow, this game stands out, you right. know, 10 years from now or 10 years ago, this is a great game just on its own thing. I don't know that this game really does that. I guess you could argue it does because of, how much fun it is and everything, but mm. <laughs> a Zelda game is fun. This is a milestone. <laughs> yeah, you know, wow. It's, I mean, that's the thing. They're all fun, and it's like, yeah, I don't know. It is weird. It's just sort of like, it's it's sort of like Skyward Sword, which I'm also replaying. Where it's like that. It's a very well reviewed game. Like, or if you go on Metacritic, it's like like all the other ones. It's like got a 93 out of 100. You know rating but the user rating is like 7.3 which i think is the lowest of you know any of the zelda games like spirit yeah. tracks has a 7.8 you know or something so right so well, there's a, it's, there's a disconnect there sure i mean the user reviews are always they're not the most judicious voters you know like oh this game zero stars zero oh, points. yeah yeah there's those people <laughs> where it's like you know 90 zero reviews you know? yeah. it's like why would why would you give it a zero <laughs> unless right. you're just trying to make you're trying to bring the score down <laughs> which is what happens yeah i'm yeah. imagining but then you have the people that just give everything 10 so they're right. probably going to win well, um, I didn't make a top ten list, but my favorite game of the year was Gone Home, which I did not see coming at all because it is not like most games that I've played in the year. It's not even the kind of game I generally play. I, I sort of played it based on the recommendations and really, really, really enjoyed it just for what it is and what it does with storytelling. Um, but I think I've, I've I wrote a pretty long review on on, on the site if you're interested in hearing a little more about it. But uh, the story itself is not even that you know, fascinating or interesting. It's just the way it's told and to the detail at which it goes into its characters, it goes far beyond what most games do. Like just you're piecing together these people's lives without a central narrative. You're putting together pieces of their lives and understanding who they are without like, you know, necessarily like a, uh, uh, someone telling you what's happening. Although there is narration for bits of the story you pick up. There's a little bit of a voice. But as far as the cohesive story, that all happens in your head, which is uh, really, really interesting. It actually kind of reminds me of Dark Souls to a certain yeah. extent. I was about to say, yeah, isn't that the stuff you didn't like in Dark Souls, you know? With Dark Souls, it's even more ambiguous, though. Mm. And the, Wait the story- a minute. 
The story yeah. didn't like something about Dark Souls. Oh yeah, I thought I thought I was pretty vocal about that before. When I was first starting playing the game, when you don't know the story, when you haven't put it together yet, in the process of putting it together, Dark Souls is very frustrating because Aww. you feel like, you feel like you feel like you're missing half the story still after you've even completed the game, and then but you that, go back. So that's the beauty then, of it. Yeah. I felt a little cheated by the end of Dark Souls after I'd beaten it and felt like I didn't even understand what I had accomplished. Well, you know, the, the thing I can agree with is that the ending is pretty shitty. I mean, it doesn't even matter <laughs> if you, like, if you beat it, you know, one pass or, or the other, or even if you know the entire story and whatever, the, the ending is shitty anyway. And that's, you know, it, I, I think that's the case of many video games, actually, where the ending, especially Japanese games, you know, like... You know, the ending is just like the end. Okay, you won. Bam, it's finished. And uh, it lacks flair, you know. And I think that's one thing I liked about a game like, for example, uh, Zelda 64, you know, Ocarina of Time. Yeah. Where all, you know, the Final Fantasy games, where they take the time to show you the world and shit. You save the world and whatever. And uh, you feel like you've accomplished something. It's not just, well, it's done. All right. Yeah. Even uh, A Link Between Worlds, like that game had no plot, and then it's got like a half hour ending. Oh yeah, <laughs> like and it's like wow, they really like tried to. I mean, just relative to the rest of the game, it feels like an epic effort, even though it's you know just sort of rudimentary. Yeah, and it was you know like, you know they at least they gave you a reward at the end. Yeah. But it's true, but it, it feels like too much compared to the rest. Like, where you start yeah. the game, you don't know anything. Oh, yeah, well... That's what they do the whole plot. Like, yeah. you find out about the other, you know, Triforce <laughs> and everything, you're a spoiler alert, and, yeah, I mean, but it was it was effective. I mean, I was like, oh, wow, I'm glad they put that in there. Yeah. Well, the other Triforce is shown on the cover of the game, so, I mean, I don't think yeah, anybody but, was, was thinking about that. But, yeah, there's a big story dump at the end. It was, I, did, I, I mean, you guys know how I feel about that story in that game. I think it's shit. But, uh, Dark Souls, just to finish up what I was, what I was saying was like, once I beat it again, or once I started actually reading the item descriptions, which is key to understanding anything in the game, I, I've, I, honestly, I really love the, the story of the game. I just didn't get it at first, and that's why I was frustrated. So, anyway. Gone Home, you can get in one playthrough. It's four hours long. I got pretty much everything. Huh. There's a couple aspects of the story that, I mean, Azil, you said you didn't have any trouble with it, but I had to go back at, towards the end of the game and really hunt down some key parts of it. It's a total side story. It's a detail of a character that kind of blossoms into this whole bigger understanding of what's happened in the, the history of some of these characters that really just blew me away. And that kind of solidified my opinion of the game. Like I was having fun with it, but until I reached a certain understanding about a couple characters, it wasn't like special to me, but it's a really special game to me. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, like, I don't think it's well done, but I don't think it's uh, like as polished as it might have been. Maybe oh, I don't know. I, sure. I I felt like uh, I I found out some stuff. Like you know, I told you before, but I'm not going to spoil the game. But I found some, like I got the ending of the game, like you know, at the midpoint because I right. just you know because of my tendency to just check out every corners and shit. And so uh, I actually found the story in a disjointed order, which was you know it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty good, but I don't think it's may- like it's maybe not uh, as great as people make it out to be. You know, like I don't want to say it's overrated because it's not well known enough to to be. But to me, the greatest part of the game was like the way the characters, you know, shine through what you find and uh, the voice acting, the, the acting generally in the game. I think I think was pretty good. You know, especially the voice acting of the sister. Mm-hmm. So I think those points were really the strength of the game. Like they really captured the characters and. Uh, 
found a way to intelligently make them, you know, like you can represent them well in your head as you play. It's almost like a novel, you know, where you can yeah. imagine the characters, but at the same time it communicates. So I think it really shows the greatness of interactive media, you know, that way. I, I totally. think it's, re- it's really a good case for like, you know, we are talking about, you know, pushing the envelope of the media, you know, and I think, yeah, well, this game shows what video games can be, you know, other than just, you know, shooting demons in the head with shotguns and shit. Totally. And, and I think it hits a sweet spot for a lot of people that play games that are our age that, I mean, I'm honestly a little sick of like third person shooters and even to a certain extent, first person shooters. I'm more interested in seeing what else this medium is capable of at my age. And this is one of those games that really kind of lets you, reminds you that there's, there's more options to storytelling than just what we've been given, you know, the past several years. So anyway, I could geek out about that game for a while. Let's talk about spirit tracks. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, last podcast, I joked to Griff that if you want it, I will fucking give it to you. And then he texted me like, are you serious? And I said, absolutely take it off my goddamn hand. So my favorite part him. was if I'm going to send it back, make sure it's in pieces, which I'm like, so I guess I can keep it then. <laughs> yes, please keep it. If not, I will, I will, I will bill you if you send it back to me. <laughs> so, so, um, I, just as a preamble, I, I mean, this came out before the podcast started. It's my least favorite Zelda game, like, by a large margin. Large. You you probably haven't played every Zelda, but if you had, this would still be your least favorite, you're confident. Absolutely. (laughs) And I I fully understand that I'm probably going a little too hard against the game. It's just so frustratingly bad to me personally. Like, I don't even understand any of the the design decisions. They don't make any sense to me whatsoever. Uh, Some people like it. It it has a relatively high Metacritic for what it is. And part of my frustration, game of the year from some corners, probably. Oh my I mean, God, I can't <laughs> what Zelda does. Part uh, of my frustration with the game is trying to parse why people like the game. And so, as I was playing it, having the, the worst time of my life, I'm like, "Who <laughs> likes this shit? What the fuck?" <laughs> so, part of me giving it to Griff was, you know, it's kind of like you know, the One Ring. I didn't want this burden anymore. But <laughs> also, part of it is I wanted to hear what he had to say about it. So, please, this is the first time I've actually asked. What do you think of Spirit Tracks, a game that I fucking hate? Okay, I love it. No, <laughs> so far, I've only gotten to, like, the first uh, dungeon, but, I mean, there's, like, there's quite a ways you go before you get there. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it's weird and sort of offbeat, and I'm coming in, obviously, with different expectations. Like, I've, you know, I've just been hearing about how bad this thing is. It's one of the weakest, if not the worst, you know, Zelda. Mm-hmm. And, you know... It's it started out funny where you see him on the train and it's like well that's weird and then Zelda st- comes flying in just even right. the opening was like it's sort of comical so that immediately sort of like yeah this could be bad but it doesn't take itself too seriously and I'm just sort of enjoying like the I don't know not creativity but that in the you know it's doing different things sure. so I'm just I'm just enjoying that like where it might be cringeworthy you know coming at it from a different angle like I'm just sort of like well this is weird I haven't seen this before and also I'm comparing it to Phantom Hourglass where obviously they've touched up some of the problems I had with that game mm-hmm. you know in the interface and also I think the way the the main dungeon works like I didn't get I remember Phantom Hourglass you get timed in that in the recurring dungeon, and they think they got rid of that because I didn't have to go through that the first time. Right. There's not a... I don't know. So far, it's been weird, and sort of it reminded me of just like an old school RPG more than a Zelda, you know, because it's like you go to the castle town and you meet the princess, and she wants your help, and going to the tower, and obviously it's very interactive with Zelda. the The train thing is totally weird. 
like just going on the tracks and everything that comes with that and the way they've adapted enemies like uh the Skulltola spiders, you know, coming down in front of the train and you have to honk the horn to get right. them to move. I'm just sort of like, you know, I understand exploration with Zelda and the extension of that to the sea. That's very sort of romantic and natural, you know, and, you know, but the whole train thing is, it just seems like an arbitrary extension of that where it's like, hey, we had him on a boat. Now let's put him on a train, you know. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't really know how that, you know, came about where they thought that's, you know, exploring and train tracks don't really go together since someone's already obviously been there to, you know, lay these down. I mean, in the game, it's the spirit tracks, but I don't know. That's just a weird thing for the whole Zelda conceit where it's like it seems like one weird growth on top of another more logical growth that happened with mm-hmm. the the sea travel. But I don't know. So far, it's been weird and sort of offbeat and kind of a neat little like you know, portable Zelda game that doesn't take itself too seriously and has some fun stuff in it. So I don't really get, like, any extreme love it's getting. I guess I could understand that more from that point of view. But I, so far, it hasn't, like, made me hate it yet either. Maybe more, you know, deeper into the game, I could just get totally frustrated with it. I think you probably got pretty far into it. Yeah. Judge from your I, save file. I was to a second to last dungeon, I think it was, and I... And that was after multiple attempts. Just like I just <laughs> fucking slogged my way through that, like it was just a massive shit. Uh, and I'm still hanging on to it. So, mm. uh, I mean, I-, I couldn't speak any more about it than I already have. I don't even remember any of the dungeons, and I played through them multiple times. So they were totally forgettable to me. The story is a joke. The fact that Zelda's revealed as a ghost in the opening <laughs> title screen. Even though that's a major plot point, it's like, what the fuck, guys? That's the thing. The plot just sort of, I mean, it just sort of happens. You know, I feel like the whole bringing a link between worlds into it and its plot, Mm -hmm. I feel like the point of that was like, you know, nobody, you know, I think Nintendo heard people saying, like, we're tired of plots and we're tired of, you know, sort of tutorials and, you know, things like that and constant hand-holding. So they're just like, all right, well, we're just going to get rid of, you know, the plot and all that stuff. We're going to minimize it. It's going to be there, but it's going to be completely in the background, you know. I mean, even we discussed it, the dialogue in that game, it's like, hey, like, get the Master Sword and go do stuff. It's, you know, they just don't, even the characters don't seem to care. Yeah. And uh, so, I don't know, I think that might be a response to what you're talking about here, where they went from, you know, instead of sort of trying to do these plots where they come out looking overmatched, they just decided, well, let's just dispense with it, you know, pretty much all together and do a a very bare bones plot. I, I play that game in my in my head. I'm just like, how is this a Zelda game? It just doesn't. It feels like they had another concept and they're strapped link to it, you know. Or like I said, it's just such a weird extension of you know already what was an extension of the series where you know they added this new wrinkle and then it's like a wrinkle on top of a wrinkle. Yeah, and it just yeah, it seems that way out there. Like, I feel like the next one, like, you know, it could be... They have those little rocket ship stones, and I'm like, is there going to be space travel in this game Fuck. at some point? Is that the next, you know, portable Zelda, you know, in space? So, yeah. I don't even remember that. I, I happily blocked that out of my memory. Oh, you know what really... The one thing that kind of wowed me was, and I discovered this last night, was when you play the the spirit flute or whatever it is, and you actually blow into the microphone while moving the the flute back and forth on the screen. I thought that was really cool. That is the coolest part of the whole game. Absolutely. That is a great innovative use of both the mic and the touchscreen. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was a missed opportunity. I mean, this may have been just impossibly hard, but in the Ocarina of Time 3D, 
They could have incorporated that in there where you actually blow into the microphone while pushing the <laughs> buttons. And it would have actually been like playing an ocarina, you know. So that that would have been interesting if that had been incorporated into that game. Yeah, that is really cool. I agree. But uh, nothing else about the game is cool. <laughs> um, that's all I had to say about video games. Um, if I'm, if you're, I'm okay with you guys, go ahead. I got to talk about I'm playing Zelda 2, Diablo 3, uh, all these oh, great games. You're playing Zelda, Zelda 2 as well? I am. I'm playing it uh, on my phone, actually. I have it for yes, oh. but the, the screen is, is dark. Small. Right? Hmm? Uh, tell me this. You have the Ambassador program, right? Yeah. Okay. So whenever you play one of those virtual console games that came with that, like Zelda 2, does the screen seem darker to you? It doesn't seem darker. It just seems exceptionally sort of small. It doesn't really use the space. I mean, I guess you wouldn't notice that because you've got the XL. Yeah. So maybe that's a side effect of, you know, the XL. I don't know. I've Googled this, and I've owned three different 3DSs, and no one else seems to have this problem. And again, I've tested it on two different machines. The screen always seems like a fourth no. darker than it needs to be. Yeah, it's not dark for me either. Weird, guys. That's, that's fucking weird. I think you have a problem. You know, it's possible. <laughs> I think <laughs> you have problems. a personal problem. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yep. But uh, you should consult, uh, you know, specialist. <laughs> yeah, I'll take my 3DS to him. Well, my 3DS but, uh, does actually um, the the certain sounds the 3DS makes makes my right ear vibrate like inter like the inner, <laughs> inner ear vibrate. I'm not kidding. That's so here's good. the worst part: the entire ocarina of time. Whenever <laughs> makes, Link makes a footstep, it makes that vibrating sound in my ear. So I played most so of that, that game. You on can't mute. play that game. <laughs> yeah. I, I beat it though, just on mute. <laughs> anyway, that sucks. But uh. Yeah, so I'm replaying that. I just, you know, I was just actually testing it, and then I kind of got into it. Mm-hmm. I didn't really intend to replay Zelda 2 on my phone, which could be pretty excruciating. God, yeah, I can't point. imagine, man. Yeah, I mean, it was getting the controls. Hard. Uh, they're they're not bad. I've got um, an emulator on there that's pretty good that gives you a lot of control, and it's pretty well updated. I don't know. I think it's the go-to NES emulator for Android. Mm. And um, what else am I playing? Diablo 3, I'm trying to beat hardcore before uh, the auction house goes away. Because it all, you know, there's no telling what sort of items will be available. I don't know why I'm doing it other than my guy is like one act away from completing it. My second hardcore guy who I had to bring up. And um, what else? I, I'm kind of interested. I want to get back to to Dark Souls, but I also want to play Demon Souls. I kind of want to play that one first, and I know this probably has to be on your uh, checklist of things to do. No, so, not really. I never played no? Demon's Souls. No. But I mean, well, I mean, that's why it would be on a checklist. But uh, Oh, oh, yeah. you mean like a bucket list of things to do. Yeah. Sure. Like, things to do in the future. I mean, obviously, I was, I was also looking into, like, you know, game consoles to maybe get, because, I mean, yeah. I didn't know. I was thinking, you know, just for Christmas, you know, like, should I get a Wii U? You know, and I I looked at all of them and sort of sized them up, and the Wii U is the cheapest, but I was also looking at, like, wow, this thing's, you know, right now, things are sort of plateaued graphically, and it's not really an issue, but it is considerably weaker than the other two systems. But the other two don't have backward compatibility, and their libraries, you know, stink, so I couldn't find a reason to sort of take the plunge on any of them. Yep, Which was you know I think, kind of. I think, a, I think a lot of people are at that point right now. I mean, yeah. like I don't, I don't have any interest in a Wii U. Well, it's like, 
two games I, I want to play. You for like the Super Mario 3D World. I mean, and yeah, you that's know, it though. And even like, that's Zelda it. Wind Waker, like HD. It's like, well, you know, I've played Wind Waker in HD before, so yeah. You know, that being said, uh, you know, Nintendo had some problems with their network, you know, for a while. And uh, I think it's because actually many people bought, you know, my brother bought a Wii U. Even though I was like, I told him, yeah, sure, it's nice. And it's got some, a few nice games, but it's just a few. And, but he bought it anyway. And the thing is, like, there's a Wind Waker, you know, pack. But the game's not included. Like, you have to download it from yeah, the Yeah, like downloadable. Know, Wow. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, like too many people connected at once because probably many people bought it uh, for Christmas and uh, it crashed the servers. Well, yeah. I think it actually got uh, some success, you know, I mean, in that regard. I, I think it probably sold, you know, decently. Oh, yeah, well, I heard the sales really got boosted for it. Um, for I mean, basically in the last, uh, ever since they did the price drop and then, you know, with the exposure of the two new systems coming out, yeah, sort of helped raise its profile, and you know, sort of the rising tide uh, helped float their boat too. But um, I don't know. I just couldn't find a reason for myself. Like, I mean, I just had the money to burn, but I was still like, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to get a PS4 when I can't even play like you know, Demon Souls on it, which was a PS3 game I'd like to play. I don't want to buy a PS3 either for two hundred bucks. I don't want to yeah. buy. You know, the Wii U is sort of in the middle at three hundred, but at the same time, it's like there's not anything I must play on there where I couldn't just wait for the price to come down. And plus, I feel like in a few years it's gonna, you know, be in the same position the Wii was with this generation, this last yeah. one. So yeah, it's sort of a no-win situation. The one that sort of stuck out to me the most is the best value. I mean, it had the most power and you know future viability, I guess you know potentially, and was the cheapest was the PS4. But there's nothing on there yet I really, you know, care about. So I don't know. Yeah, the best game on PS4 right now is Assassin's Creed 4, according to most people. But the rest of it's just, like, kind of not that worthwhile right now. I mean, and do they – at this point, do the graphics really – can you – is it one of those things where, you know, I remember when PS1 and PS2, like, some of those games on PS2 were pretty ugly and you couldn't tell the difference. It wasn't until, you know mm-hmm. – certain games and later on that you know they really started taking advantage of the processing power i mean are those systems at this point still i'm not i don't know i think there are two games that stand out to me as far as there's reviews that i've read and impressions i've heard rise on the xbox one plays like shit but looks amazing uh in terms of the the detail on the character models textures and i mean it's it's made by crytek the guys behind crisis and it Mm -hmm. looks really great plays like a, a God of War clone is like clunky, but uh, and on the PS4, apparently Assassin's Creed 4 looks really good because they actually, you know, kind of you know modeled it around what the PS4 is capable of. It's not just a, it's not just quote unquote a port. It's like a really enhanced port. It's the best version of the game graphically, except for the PC, of course, which I have. Oh, yeah, and, that's the other thing. Like I can yeah. if I want the best cutting edge graphics. Sort of the nice thing about these systems is the PC graphics won't be like holding themselves back anymore to the level now they can hold themselves to the level of xbox one and ps4 instead of ps3 and 360 so to get back what you said earlier about demon souls like i don't think that's required playing for dark souls and in fact uh i know they have no relation but i mean if you're a big fan of that game Mm -hmm. i mean it would be like it's sort of like dark souls you know zero right i mean basically Here's what here's what I've heard about it. Oh, you know, again, well, I've never right, played yeah. it. I've I've seen quite a bit of Demon Souls, and I will say that I've heard that whatever whichever one you play first is probably going to be the one you walk away from liking better because of your initial exposure to it. Because they're so similar in how they play, 
it's whichever one breaks the series in for you is going to be closest to your heart. And Dark Souls is by by far and away the most polished of the two because the upcar of course they had time to refine the systems. And uh not to say Dark Souls is the smoothest experience, it's not. I was say you know. that port is the smoothest. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying like, in terms of the systems and the way it plays and the way it handles as far as you know, the way you interact with enemies and things like that, it's been improved since Demon's Souls. So I, I would honestly recommend Dark Souls, but that's that's being said by someone who's never even played Demon's Souls and who wants to play it desperately. So Yeah. So it is on the checklist. Absolutely, man. It's top of my list of things I'd like to play. If I hadn't spent $80 on games I'll never play, maybe I'd be closer to getting a PS3. <laughs> but I don't think that way. I think $5, of course I have to buy that, you know? I'm just like a little ant. You're getting like ant piranha brain. there by Steam. Yeah. Little dinks and dunks <laughs> taking yep. chunks out of you. $5 here, $5 there. Yeah, um, so I don't know. I feel like I want to get back to Dark Souls because I think my I approached it too rever you know with too much reverence because of you know how much uh obviously i heard about it you know how good it was i was you know i spent i sunk it's one of those classic things where it's like what sort of character should i build and i made like ah. guys and then i'm like trying each one of them out and it's like i really just should have you know made made a burner and play you know it's sort of what you do your first character is never going to be perfect mm-hmm. and then you just get them through the game and that one is ultimately always your favorite i feel like that happens too Yep. I mean, so yep. I should have just made a dude and just gotten through with him. Yeah, stats aren't really important in the beginning of the game. They only become important later once it becomes really expensive to upgrade your guy. You know, you get, points are just like you're just burning through them earlier on in the game because they're yeah. so easy to acquire. So how you base how you build them in the first couple hours is like inconsequential. How you yeah, build them? Stupid stuff uh, like you know making the face you know <laughs> the way I want sure. it. I mean all that stuff and you, you know. will never see that face because you'll very rarely play as human or I mean I imagine most people don't play as human very long. So well, even when you do, you don't like you don't look you at your face. On. You know, right? You have a helmet on or you're not facing the camera that way, so it doesn't really matter. But the 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 way they let you make faces in the game is just fucking hilarious. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I made one character called not Conan O'Brien, and it looks like the Joker with Conan O'Brien's face, and it's like large pink hair, like the Joker would have uh, if it was like a neon pink. It's it's the most horrendous face I could create, bright rosy cheeks, but it looks like Conan O'Brien. Yeah, uh, I would love to play Demon Souls if someone wants to buy me a PS3. Moving on to movies, we got to keep moving. Um, I saw The Hobbit, the first one, not the second one yet. Um, I bought it. Uh, cause I was bored on the holidays and the first hour of the movie, I was really enjoying myself. I was laughing. I mean, I was finding myself laughing out loud at certain scenes and I walked in with low expectations and I was having fun with the movie and the acting seemed really well, really good considering I hated the acting in most Lord of the Rings, but, uh, Three came along. <laughs> yeah, and then it just keeps going and going and going. And, and, and I got this overwhelming impression that Jackson just doesn't know when to stop. He's just like, I want to put this in there. I want to put this in there. And that's great to be in that position of power where you can make those things happen. But it's not so great from the audience who is looking for kind of a cohesive experience, uh, a focused story rather than like, oh, this happened. And then, well, oh, this happened over here. And maybe we'll get back to that. Maybe not. Well, I'm over here. It's like just a sprawling mess just to watch. And it's also the mental note that he had that he split this into three movies already and still can't, you know, edit himself. And that is inevitably sitting in the in the forefront of my mind. I can't get it out of my mind. The fact that as I'm watching it, 
is I'm watching the timer tick away of, oh, I'm an hour into this three-hour movie, which is part one of three of a, a book. It can't it, – that's a part of the watching experience, knowing what you're in for and knowing the granularity of each scene you're watching. You know, it, it's uh, – it started to wear me down and by the end I was just glad it was over. But again, that first hour, a concentrated fun with the dwarves in Bilbo's house, I had a lot of fun with the movie and I really enjoyed it. So uh, not so much the action-y bits because – they're sort of just like a big CG mess. And it's just like, yep, this, I'm sure everyone will make it out of this crazy scenario alive. And, you mean uh, like when they're running around the mines, like it's Super Mario yeah. Brothers or Donkey yeah, Kong? Pretty much. <laughs> it's like, but yeah, I was impressed with those bits because actually I think we remember the Lord of the Rings trilogy looking better than it does if you look at it now. Mm-hmm. Like it hasn't aged uh, very well. I mean you could see where like the limits of their budget and the effects were. And I don't think they have those limitations this time. Just like Peter Jackson, you know, feels emboldened to, you know, like, yeah, I'm going to release a three-hour movie. You know, I'm not even going to, you know, I'm not saying anything for the extended DVD. <laughs> like, I saw the I saw the extended edition actually. Oh, I had wow. a I had a choice, and I'm like, they cost the same. Oh, sure, I'll get the extended. Apparently, yeah. it adds like 15 minutes, and of course, I'm not going to be able to distinguish what was what was extended. Yeah. And what was not well, the, the Lord of the Rings movies, like those, I think the old ones added at least like a half an hour to yeah. an hour each. So totally, this, totally. you know, he wasn't leaving it. You know, he wasn't leaving a lot of uh, ammo. You know, he yeah. was shooting every bullet he had. You know, in the theaters, which you know I, he could get away with since the other movies made you know billions of dollars. Inexplicably, I've seen all three of those movies extended edition, and I didn't even like them. I don't know why. I felt like I kind of had to. No, yeah, I didn't. As I watched all three of them recently, and like I think the Return of the King, probably the theatrical edition, you know, that one best picture had to be better mm. than the extended one I watched because I mean it. It first of all, it's four hours long, but it takes you if you're a normal person it's going to take you like seven hours to watch it because <laughs> i mean you're going to be uh let's stop and make another bag of popcorn or yeah. do something let's take a shower uh so it's just it's also got like experience. 12 endings it's like a chrono it's like chrono trigger it has as many endings as chrono trigger does it, man- it managed to have 12 endings without having you know if you're a purist the right endings you know like uh, it doesn't even involve time travel or multiple decisions it still has 12 endings how does it do that you think it would like you know click on this chapter to go to this <laughs> make it optional yeah anyway uh i mean i've already said before i'm not the biggest lord of the rings fan but i found myself liking the first movie so i'll probably see the second movie once it comes out on you know streaming or download i'll probably get it i'm not gonna see it in theaters i don't like it that much so azil you've seen it you liked it sort of right well yeah i found oh, yeah, it i'm planning know. to see the second one no spoilers like well, you know, like at the end, uh, no. But uh, I, I found the first movie. I saw the boss movies in theaters, you know, with friends. And um, the first movie, I found it really long, like really long. Like like the last hour, I was just waiting to go. Like you know, is it ending? Oh God, is it ending now? Oh, is, yeah. it, is it? This one, it wasn't so much like that. And uh, I I think it's more like more well rounded, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's still quite long. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to see this grief. hasn't seen it. I'm not going to discuss. Uh, they have added many parts to the original story, you know. Like, in the first movie, you can already tell as many stuff they've added. That's like fan fiction. And the same goes <laughs> for the second movie. But it, I guess I was expecting it, so it didn't bother me as much. I think there's two parts that are pretty good in the movie. Uh, but, uh, well, I'm not going to discuss them then because I they don't. They have like really a Donkey Kong level again, right? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, they totally have a Donkey Kong level again, indeed, and uh, it's not bad, it's not too bad, but, uh, you know, like, there's a part, I can, I guess I can say as much, but the part, my favorite part was with the dragon, you know, yeah. like, uh, with Smaug, I think it's really the, where the movie shines, and uh, there's another part, you know, which is uh, something they've added, it's pretty much fan fiction. And uh, that was pretty cool. There's some parts that's pretty cool with it. You know, it involves Gandalf, and it's, uh, I guess it's all right, you know. But other than that, the movie, yeah, it's not too bad. But, you know, they've added, it's like with Loves of the Ring, you know, they've added some romance shit, and it's just, you know, it's not at its place. It's not very interesting. But other than that, it's, it's decent. But again, it's it's quite long, like too long, you know. These movies really should have been, I don't know, maybe not one movie, but, yeah, two movies cut shorter and, you know, straight to the point, at least in well, my opinion. The funniest thing to me, just on that front, with the first movie, is that the very is the very ending when it finally does end. They're like, "Look, we can see the mountain, but it still looks like it's like hundreds of miles away. <laughs> yeah. they're like it's like a dot on the horizon, and it's like, wow, I really feel like we've come far on this journey. <laughs> like, you can yeah. barely see what could be the mountain. You know, the the thing is, like in the second movie, it feels like they arrived there too quickly. You know, it's a it's another problem I had with these movies is, you know. I feel like Peter Jackson doesn't really respect the the pacing of the, of the novel, you know, and that's like that's all right. He can do whatever he wants, but the thing is, like, there's some parts which, you know, when I read it, you know, long ago, felt important to me. Where we just, I don't know, it feels like it just lasts, you know, five minutes, maybe ten at max in the movie. Whereas, you know, some of the parts where the orcs, you know, the defiler, Azog the defiler, it, it, you know, you you get, you know, forty five minutes of Azog the defiler, and I don't really give a shit about Azog the fucking defiler. So, uh, and then, you know, they just get to the mountain and boom, you know, like, you know, you feel like, you know, 10 minutes before they were like still a hundred miles from it. And then bam, they had the feet or the, the foot of the mountain. So it's a bit, you know, I feel like the pacing could, could be, could be better, I guess. Oh, well, that's, that's what happens when you make a three hour movie. Yeah. Yeah. Pacing well. is probably going to suffer, <laughs> but yeah, I mean. But I mean, I I guess I'm it's I'm sad to hear like that they arrive too quickly, you know, because it's one of these things where why not just have them arrive by the end of the last movie then? But I mean, they still had things to do before that. But yeah, it is a weird thing where he establishes a certain pace, and then it's disregarded, and then you know, for other things, it slows down again. Where yeah, it's, yeah, it seems it comes off sort of arbitrary. So that being said, yeah, I really feel like like the you know. Towards the end of the second movie, it's where it really shines, you know, when it comes to the dragon and stuff like that. It really Six gets. Hours you know. in. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's pretty good. Overall, I, I didn't regret watching the movie. It's too long and, you know, there are some, you know, cringe worthy parts, but uh, overall, it's still, it was still a pleasant experience to me. Hmm. Oh, well. I guess we'll, uh, hold on, hold on. I got I'm sorry. Thing. I, I forgot. Prequel. This is very important. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> now so, I'm sure you guys, like I did, stayed away from this movie. I mean, this was yes. st- this, everyone stayed away from this movie. Actually, I looked up the box office receipts, and uh, so yeah, and it got trashed, absolutely trashed by reviewers. I don't know what its reputation is, you know, among fans or sort of the user reviews. I don't think they were much better. On uh, on Metacritic, it had like 60% approval, but on Rotten Tomatoes, it was like a good 30-40% for both critics and uh, and users. But I was actually pleasantly surprised by this movie. They paint, I mean, just for the difference, I mean, it wasn't like anything super special, 
but they sort of painstakingly you know stayed faithful to the John Carpenter version of the movie and made a companion that fits it perfectly i mean they sort of explain everything you see at the uh at the Norwegian station they go out of their way I mean, some argued that it was too faithful, that it might have hurt the movie, but I don't think that's true. I mean, I I prefer to think they knew, like, well, we're not making, you know, gone with the wind here on our own. Let's just try to make it as faithful to that as possible. And on that front, it was refreshing because, you know, they didn't take a bunch of liberties or say, oh, well, this doesn't matter. We're telling a much better, We're you know, our story is so great. We have to make sure we uh, do that right. No, <laughs> you know, just follow the bare bones, you know do what you need to do template to make it an effective prequel. And I felt like they did that. It was surprisingly well done. The creature effects, there was a lot of CG, but it wasn't like terrible. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, I was expecting it to be a lot worse, I guess I should say, but it was like, it held up. It was kind of a different look at the thing. It moved differently. You could see it from different angles. They took advantage of the effects, but I mean, there was still some, uh, some practical stuff in there. And, you know, it it was different, representative of, you know, the times it was made in. But it was still an effective, you know, as much as it could be, uh, companion piece to the original movie. I even watched uh, the 1982 John Carpenter thing right after just to compare, you know, notes. And I was surprised when they go to the Norwegian station. It's like, wow, they incorporated things I didn't even notice when I was watching the prequel that they, you know, made sure to get right in there. Nice. And uh, Mary Elizabeth uh, Weinstead did a good job. I read that they chose a female lead just so they just so they wouldn't even, you know, be like they were competing with the Kurt Russell character with their movie. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems like a lot of thought was put into it. Hmm. Well, how I guess cool would it, How cool would it have been if they actually had cast Kurt Russell as that character? Though? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's a Norwegian Kurt Russell. <laughs> An older Norwegian with a big beard. Yeah. But uh you know what's funny is they they also kind of they they touch on something in the movie that you know theoretically uh the end of the thing has this ambiguous ending where Kurt Russell yeah. or a particular yeah. childs could be the thing and they never address it but they in they they may have inadvertently or purposely put an element in there about the the nature of the creature that might dispel that mystery that might uh, give the answer away. So that's it's interesting to think of that. They even, you know, I don't know if they did that on purpose or not, but it's interesting that it's in there. You can still argue about it, but they maybe it's their statement on uh, that ending. Well, so we what, think this. <laughs> so what do they want to know? Uh, well, no, they don't they don't say it that way though. It's never even, you know, it's okay. not directly addressed. It's actually, you know, if they if they meant for this to I, I doubt they did, but if they meant for it, it's actually a very subtle sort of illusion. So Azil's saying lay it on the table. Yeah, because I'm not going to watch the movie, so Oh come on. <laughs> okay. Well basically uh she finds out at the end of the movie that her last companion who uh you know, whether he's a thing or not, because they get separated. You know, she says, you know how I knew you were human the first time? Because they established this sort of test in this movie is that the thing, you know, it can't recreate inorganic matter like your clothes. It has to put on new clothes. And she finds, you know, fillings. She's, you know, her basic test is like, do you have fillings or not? If you do, you're not a thing. If you don't, it doesn't necessarily mean mm-hmm. you're, you know, the thing. But, it, you know, it, at least it would rule you out if you did. Yeah. So she says to her, you know, companion at the end, you know how I knew you were human when you came back? You know, because you still had your earring. 
And so, you know, then he reaches up and she's like, oh, it was the other ear, you know. <laughs> and, you know, so she goes, and then she <clears throat> flames the guy. And uh, Childs in the thing has an earring. And he has oh. the earring. I checked <laughs> at the end of uh, wow. the thing. So, I mean, were they... Nah, were they you know what? That doesn't work. Why? That, would, he, that doesn't work because <laughs> it requires them to have known that was going to be the distinguishing characteristic back when they made the thing. Whereas this could be something they made up for the prequel. Well, no, no. I mean, obviously, they just... I'm just saying the guys yeah. who made the prequel, this might have been their statement on it. Like, not okay. John Carpenter meant that or anything. You Got know. it. Okay. Just, okay. you know, maybe they just wanted to, you know, throw that in there as a nod. I doubt it. But there is a level of detail with the way they put together the Norwegian station and handled the spaceship. Everything kind of fits perfectly with the other movie. It was really refreshing to see... It's the stuff we always complain about. You know, why didn't they do this right? Why didn't they follow this? It was easy, you know. And this was just a movie that, while not, you know, like a super movie on its own, it was like, well, they actually did, you know, follow all the rules and take it step by step Hmm. and sort of, you know, knew what they were doing, which that was, I mean, it's sad that, you know, that's what I'm, you know, raving about this movie for. But yeah, for being being, like adequate. Yeah, you know, for being cool, like yeah, but I mean, it's like you never see that. They no well, one I ever gets yeah. as much trouble. I understand. That being said, I mean, I understand. I, I've always figured, and my personal revulsion to the movie, and, and even as a concept, but just because the thing stands alone. Yes, there are a lot of things before that could have been told, but I'm happy with the story was told. And revisiting it is sort of like saying we can do it better. And I know you're saying that's not how these guys approached it. I'm saying yeah. that may have been why it reviewed the way it did because yeah, yeah. It's that precedent, a huge precedent is set, you know, by the first well, Another movie. criticism that struck out at it was it's like, oh, you know, the way they were aping everything from the first movie. But I, I think that's sort of like it was the other way around that they were trying, you know, mm-hmm. to just be respectful as much as possible, maybe to their detriment. Yeah. And... The other thing is they were this movie was going to be a remake of the thing. The the filmmakers actually had to convince the studio to go with this prequel route cuz they personally felt like, you know, there's no point in remaking it. You know, they can't top it. Yeah. So, sure. I mean, in a way, you could look at these guys saved, you know, saved us from what could have been an even, you know, a much oh, movie. Yeah. yeah. But imagine something that was kind of interesting. I I got the, all three of the films from my dad for Christmas, the thing from another world from, I think it was 51 it came out, the 82 thing, and then mm. this one. Because mm. he was the one who told me, like, you know, this was surprisingly not terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine, though, so the studio execs argued against the notion of making it uh, a prequel, and they ended up making well, it, it just, a prequel. They just wanted a remake. I mean, I understand that, yeah. But imagine, because it did so poorly at the box office, there's some asshole in a suit right now going, they should have made it a remake. Would have no, been I, better. I think that also, because it bombed, that's a good thing. Because yeah. now, they're you know they're just going to figure the property is dead. Because, I mean, oh, you yeah. know, they called it The Thing. They didn't, right. like, present it, like, you know, so much as a prequel other than just, hey, it's The Thing, 2011, you know. All the same stuff's going to happen. The Thing's going to eat people. And, and no one went to see it. So hopefully that'll be the end. I mean, I'm sure in 20 years they'll remake it again just because people will forget and go, oh, you know what? Everyone likes John Carpenter's 1982 thing, even though it bombed too. You know, it's one of these things where why do they keep doing this? Right, right. Well, the problem is also that, you know, I doubt many young people nowadays even know about the original movie or the, you know, John Carpenter, you know, remake. So, you know, it, it has no name recognition. 
it's just weird, you know, to to try to be remaking these movies where, you know, like you know, True current movies where it's like they're looking at like DVDs or video sales since 1982 and going like, wow, this is a really popular thing, you know. But it's like, you know, it wasn't. It took 20 years for that popularity. It's not something good for a theatrical run, probably. Yeah. Right. So uh, thanks for joining us, guys, and we'll be back next time there is an issue. <laughs>